Happy 4th of July, everyone. This is it, as you guys can see on the bottom. Episode 10, the season 1 finale of Talking Thrones. Pat, we finally made it here. 10 episodes in, man. You got any words to say before we get this show on the road? Yeah, you know, I think the Talking TV audience can agree with me that this is more like, uh, you know, blood than fire. You know, blood and fire, because we see the blood first, you know? Yeah. What I mean? Yeah. Right? I get right? All of that and more. <laughs> Stay tuned. Alright people, so we're pre-recording this obviously for the 4th of July, uh, famously this is the only episode so far of the show that is not live, but that but it would be awesome if you guys could still comment nonetheless and give us your thoughts, obviously Pat we made it, a full season yeah. of, this, of this show. If you're watching this, you know, on the night of the 4th of July, like, you know, that sword at the beginning of this episode with all the blood dripping off of it, that's my knife with all the, uh, you know, like pork ribs and stuff that I'm barbecuing. Dude, it's ridiculous. Uh, like, like, yeah, like King's Landing was getting ready to throw their own 4th of July. Like the way that like they were celebrating Ned Stark's death, that was almost like that should have been declared a national holiday as far as that goes. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, hey, thank you for tuning in and watching this pre-recorded episode. Like, we're definitely doing it because the holiday just lands on that day. But yes. uh, we are excited, you know, because this is the final episode of season one. And, hey, you know, it's it's what I've been saying all along. Like, you know, season one, essentially, you know, a lot of setup. A lot of, yes. a lot you know, of setup. Uh, things that we have to sort of watch and understand and digest and you know, uh, before the exciting things happen, but you know, what happens is right here in the season nine season, uh, or episode nine, you know, uh, episode 10 combo, you basically get the formula that's going to continue, uh, throughout the rest of the series. And that's big events happen in episode nine. And then basically episode 10 is a lot of setup for the next season yes. and give you a lot of time uh, between the seasons to start thinking about and digesting and, you know, getting prepared for what's going to happen next. And I think this changes the flow between season one and season two. Uh, season two seems uh, definitely a lot tighter and gets right into the action and, and really is a, a great ride from start to finish. Whereas like season one, there's a couple things that are like predictable, a couple things that are like, oh, come on, get to the point already. You know, there's there's a lot of uh, hurry up and wait type moments uh, before, in my opinion, it starts getting good. So, uh, yeah, with with that sort of said, uh, what is some of the elements that are, are really brought into play here, setting us up for season two, Dom? Yeah, I mean, the to kind of bounce off your point first off though this definitely you're right sets the precedent of okay so episode 9 is the big event episode 10 is kind of fallout reshuffle reset for the next season and we see that all throughout this episode we see that obviously with Arya where she's being spirited off to next this sets up Sansa for the next couple of seasons obviously right we see kind of the effects right of, again I've talked about this before on, on this podcast which is that part of the power of Game of Thrones is this idea of having this one event that you can see just the ripple effects of it throughout the entirety of the event. And if I can sling one thing this episode's praise, specifically with this finale, it's that I think that it does a masterful job of kind of handling and having Ned Stark's death be the ripple effect that's going to set us up for the next couple of seasons, really. Obviously, you know, Rob being crowned king in the north, right? Um, John obviously has a has a big decision to make, obviously, now that, the, you know, given, given his current allegiance, he has a big moment to go through, right? And then we'll also have uh, Tyrion going on his on the rest of his journey that's going to set him up for the rest of the show, and Danny as well. And I think that kind of the elements and what this sets up for season two is it shows that a lot of shit is about to hit the fan. Yes, this season had a lot of plotting, but it was well worth it because there was a lot of shit that they had to set up. And the thing that always impresses me about season one as a whole is for a season that is primarily set up, you're right. There is, I, I, It was a completely different experience for me watching the first couple of episodes week to week as opposed to binging it all at once because I didn't famously didn't start watching this show week to week basis 
until season four, which came out my junior year of high school. So kind of the first three seasons, I've always had this experience of just binging it first and foremost. And so this was kind of really the first time where I was able to step back and kind of see and experience it the way that everyone else did when this show first came out. And it definitely gave me a different perspective on both this season and kind of overall the show, right? Because that's kind of part of the whole point of this podcast is this podcast is kind of supposed to answer the question kind of what went wrong with later on in this season and for me like all the seeds among many many other things are found in this initial season right here yeah i i I sort of had a different experience like i binge watched season one and then season two basically i started having like once a week dinner parties with friends during each like you know other season and we basically every week it was game of thrones night and we uh enjoyed dinner and we watched the episode and we had a great conversation about it and i feel like that sort of water cooler feel is uh one of the big you know successes to this show it's like every week you had to sort of talk with your friends and whether or not it was like you watching it sunday night and then going in uh to work or school or whatever you were up to uh you were sort of talking about it with the people that you knew watched the show and you know in, in our sort of friend circle we basically uh most of the weeks you know maybe we missed some here and there uh and definitely towards the later seasons when they took a little more gaps to to release those seasons um the dinner parties got like longer and longer apart but for the most part it was sort of like a big social experience to watch it week to week uh so like this show is uh you know definitely season one was getting everybody hyped and getting everybody on board and then the other seasons once people were on board it was like yeah like we we got to talk about this we got to watch this you know together or whatever it may be uh relatively in the same amount of time so we can talk about it so i think that's a cool aspect of the show in terms of your point about ripple effects and like how uh, things uh, for the whole show sort of ripple out from Ned Stark's death, it's it's one of those things. It's it's how he fails to play the game where things start to ripple out because you know Renly basically says, "Hey, you know, uh, swear with me, and you know uh, I'll be king, and and we'll basically make sure that we put an end to the Lannisters." And if Ned sort of you know did that. And sort of ignored the fact that Stannis was the rightful heir. Um, you know, you're, you're talking about, uh, you know, th- that that would be it. There would be no war. Yeah. You know, the fact is, um, you know, the the choices Ned had to sort of end this war were not the honorable ones. And it spurred, you know, separate claims to the throne because you're going to have Stannis and Renly. Uh, you're going to have... Um, you know, who else uh, becomes a claimant to the throne? Like you have Joffrey, obviously. Joffrey, who's on the Rob, throne. who just wants to, uh, independence for the North, yeah, which is exactly. established in this episode. And then later on in season two, we get a fifth claim, which is when it officially becomes the War of the Five Kings with Balon Greyjoy, uh, Theon's father. Yeah. So, you know, it's like everybody is sort of breaking apart and the realm starting to fall apart and it's descending into war. And I think this goes to a big point uh, earlier in the season that Rob, uh, not, uh, Robert, you know, uh, Baratheon makes, where it's not about the realm, you know, more or less. It's basically about these uh, squabbles and personal gains and everybody's sort of out for themselves. And it's not about sort of, uh, you know, making sure the kingdoms work together and in harmony. And, you know, he sort of, predicts and foreshadows this, you know, falling apart uh, of the kingdoms. And, you know, it's one of those things that's very interesting. It's like he doesn't do anything to really stop it. He sort of just continues to drink wine and be led down that path. He allows himself to get completely surrounded by the Lannisters. But he can see the writing on the wall that, you know, the basically he's not going to really survive. He's sort of, you know, just enjoying his uh kingdom why it lasts and then he doesn't really put any credence to what's going to come afterwards um other than really worried about daenerys and making sure that she doesn't live uh which is a very odd uh you know thing that that's the thing he harps on but he he really doesn't do much to um you know sort of prevent any of this fracturing that happens as soon as his death uh, occurs yeah, it's interesting kind of how Robert is, again, it's one of the most said things about him was that he was a much better battle commander than he was a king. And 
It shows clearly because he was perfectly willing to let the realms fall apart, even though he knew kind of what was coming, essentially. And kind of the whole focus, right, is kind of, you know, setting up, I feel like, the precedent for our season finales going forward, right? Obviously, the Game of Thrones have their season finales, but we're going to have our season finales here on Talking Thrones. And so my whole thing is that I want to kind of break down kind of where each of the major characters, at least presented in this episode, kind of wrap up and where that sets them going forward for this next season. So um, I'm going to just jump in there with my favorite one, and that's uh, Joffrey, right? Because, you know, doesn't he have a singer come into his court and like sing this uh, terrible song? And then Joffrey basically uh, sets off to mutilate him. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's um, it's this very distasteful song, kind of about King Robert's death, and and just like how he, and it's just yet another example. This guy is being set up for failure. It's the poor singer from earlier on in the season when Cat was taking Tyrion to the Vale, basically just showing how it's like, oh yeah, Robert died, and it's all a big joke. And it's just another example to show off Joffrey's cruelty. He beratedly shows off all of the heads of the deceased Stark men to Sansa, showing her the heads of her father and uh, Septimore Dane, and um. Exactly. Really- it's bringing in like the sadistic element of Joffrey. Like, you know, he's he's proud of these pikes and the heads on them. And he's threatening sort of this, you know, low level uh, mag- uh, magician or uh, musician. Yeah, musician. Yeah. Uh, I guess magic tricks would be pretty cool. At this yeah, point. it would but, be. Um, you know, for the most part, it, it's one of those things where, you know, after riding the high of Ned Stark's death, uh, Joffrey has this confidence that he can sort of be this uh, sadistic king, and we're going to see that side of him grow, uh, you know, over the course of, of season two. And I think these particular, uh, you know, uh, scenes, you know, one with the musician and the other with Sansa, and making sure that she uh, basically is uh, deflated and defeated. Uh, seeing sort of the triumph, his his bloody triumph over her family, and basically saying that, hey, this is going to be what I do to your brother Rob. You know, it's one of those things where we understand that Joffrey's not quite right. You know, in the, head. in the head, like there's something sadistic about him, something where, you know, uh, like I said last uh, week in episodes nine, when we were talking about it, uh, Joffrey doesn't really know how to play the Game of Thrones. He's just sort of, you know, drunk with the the idea that he's king and he wants to present himself as a strong king. And he thinks a strong king is basically a sadistic king. And that's, you know, two separate things. Like a strong king is not necessarily uh, sharing the qualities of a sadistic king. Uh, But Joffrey doesn't really understand that. He's not intelligent enough at this point in his life to, to fully understand that. Let me ask you something. So there's a moment, a very obvious moment, where Sansa obviously makes a crack at Joffrey about Rob bringing her his head, Joffrey's head instead of Joffrey serving her Rob's head. And obviously Joffrey famously has, you know, one of his King's Guard members, Sir Marin, who seems all too eager to want to just manhandle Sansa, just does a number on her. And then she has this really interesting moment where she has a chance to like kind of push him off the balcony, almost at the risk of her own life, but the Hound steps in and stops her, right? The Hound, who really isn't that much of a character this season, he's kind of just a glorified bodyguard who ends up getting more development as, you know, the show went on. Obviously, he, you know, eventually when he leaves King's Landing and leaves Joffrey's service and everything, but I definitely think that... Uh, I don't know, what, what do you think would have happened if Sansa had perchance gone through with that and actually killed Joffrey there? Well, I, I think... The thing here is uh, first, you know, Joffrey refusing to hit Sansa. Like, it's one of those things where, strangely enough, this is like one of the first things of advice from Cersei that he takes. You know, never strike your your, your queen. And so he basically gets around that by saying, hey, you know, go ahead and, and slap Sansa around for me. And so it's, it's strange that he is... He's really saying that he's going to respect Cersei, but by disregarding her and getting around it by some sort of, you know, oh, my guard did it for me. And so it's it's almost like he doesn't really care about the rules. He doesn't respect even the family that's supposed to guide him. And, you know, it's sort of setting up that he's not going to be this great king. And with Sansa, you know, sort of understanding that he's a sadistic person and having a lot of that, like, 
uh, really grief that's going on inside her and it's starting to manifest as hate towards Joffrey and, you know, probably a few other people uh, in the realm. Like if she goes ahead and, and pushes him off there, he probably would have died, you know, Joffrey. But ultimately, I think what would have happened is Cersei would have uh, basically uh, punished her in terms of, um, you know, either death, which I think would be too easy because, you know, the whole idea that we need the Starks alive as bargaining chips. Um, so I, I don't necessarily think that she would have been killed in, in retaliation, uh, but I think she would have been tortured or in some regards, uh, maybe mutilated, you know, some, some weird uh, punishment that would keep her alive. But at the same time, she wouldn't really want to to live after after whatever said torture or, or whatnot is. So I think when the hound steps in and kind of stops her and says you're going to regret that, uh, you know, or sort of hints towards that, I think he's really preventing her from, uh, you know, potential years because we have no idea how long this war is going to be. It could be years of sort of imprisonment or torture or whatever is done to her humiliation. You know, that's that's some of the stuff that's like, you know, those are going to be the worst years of your life or uh, life if, you know, uh, you go through with this. Um, and I think that's really what the hound is doing, uh, protecting her. And it's really setting up like, you know, where this goes in season two, uh, whose allies, you know, or who does Sansa have as an ally in season two? It's really nobody. Uh, but ultimately, um you know, she's going to have the Hound as a potential uh, ally, not just like a bodyguard in Joffrey's court, uh, but someone that she might actually have uh, some conversations with and get some uh, deep understanding about the situation that she's in. Absolutely. Let's talk about Arya for a second. So this episode, Arya only has two major sequences, right? It opens with her, with Yaren spiriting her away uh, from the capital, kind of, uh, you know, from the mainstay of Ned's carnage. And uh, obviously, you know, he keeps calling her boy, boy over and over again, and then cuts her hair in a show of display that kind of shows, okay, yeah, he's bringing her back to Winterfell, but he knows that she's going to be wanted. So she kind of has to undergo this kind of uh, this new look in order to kind of protect her identity. And this kind of sets up Arya for this kind of inevitable journey where even though she definitely doesn't undergo, like, you know, death the way that her father and her mother and her brother do, she kind of undergoes kind of like her own self-inflicted stark torture where, you know, Sansa is stuck in King's Landing having to, you know, do Joffrey's every... Uh, you know, do, forced to endure Joffrey's bidding and torture. And she kind of, this sets Arya up for kind of this whole thing is where ev it seems like every single time Arya's this close to getting what it is that she wants, it gets snatched from her, right? End of season two, she makes a terrible decision by not having a faceless man that she has pretty much in her service kill Tywin Lannister and effectively ending the war right there. And um, then she ends up in season three getting this close to being reunited with Rob and then the Red Wedding happens. And then by the time we get to season four, she's like kind of, you know, screw this. I'm going to like kind of do my own thing. And we kind of see where that leads her. But it's interesting. I think Arya struggled because Arya was always a character that it definitely felt like long term. We didn't exactly know how that was going to work out. Right. Because the whole thing of where she ends her arc ends in the books. Right. Is. I would say right at, like, the cutoff point, like, right in the first couple episodes of season six when she gets her eyesight back for the first time. That's kind of where Arya leaves, but we really have no indication of where that goes from here on out. So, like, what, what, what's kind of your take on that as far as where Arya's arc goes for the rest of the show? Well, the interesting thing, what we know right now in episode 10, you know, of season one and getting set up for season two is that she's traumatized, but she doesn't have time to deal with that, right? right. It's basically pull you to the side, cut your hair, you're a boy now, you're part of the Night's Watch, let's go. And essentially, later in the episode, we sort of understand who else is part of the Night's Watch, and it's uh, uh, Gendry, uh, you know, uh, Robert Baratheon's bastard son that basically worked at the blacksmith's shop. So for the most part, we understand that the two of them are on the run. Uh, there's a couple other uh, characters that are introduced in this sort of Night's Watch uh, march back up to the wall but for the most part it's like Arya fleeing for her life traumatized not having time to process this and you know what's going to happen and essentially uh you know the fact that she's traveling with Gendry is going to be interesting like do the two of 
you know, do, do the two share, um, you know, why they're on the run? You know, do they become allies? Do they sort of, you know, uh, you know, keep it hidden from each other? It's sort of like this, you know, what's going to happen when the two of them get put together and, you know, they're put on this trip to get away from King's Landing? Yes. Uh, I think, the, obviously, the idea to pair Arya up with Gendry kind of always worked out in hindsight, right? The fact that they're both kind of outcast, they're both kind of the black sheep, respectively, of their family, so it makes sense, obviously, that they would kind of have this connection, right? And obviously, we see how that becomes, no pun intended, but bastardized in the later seasons with that whatever the fuck that sex scene was in episode two, where it's basically just showing, hey, Arya's all grown up now, and it's like, oh, yeah, because we definitely needed to see that. But I, I definitely think that there's kind of some merit to that point of Arya is... Tr- traumatized beyond belief but she kind of doesn't have time to deal with it and yeah. she's constantly well, I think, shuffled i think aria right is it's one of those things like the traumatized and not time the process like you know at, at some point she does process it and she realizes that she has had experiences well beyond her years and so you know i i can understand your uh issue with the the sort of uh, you know, weird probably, sex scene I, I would say, yeah, I would say, I would say most audience members would probably agree with you that it was kind of an unnecessary sex scene. It's just the way it was but, filmed. That's all it was. It's the way yeah. it was filmed and it's kind of its inclusion there as far as that goes. But I, I think it's one of those things where like, you know, uh, because of the trauma, because of what she's been forced to do, it's, it, you know, it run away, flee for her life, you know, uh, de- not really deal with her, her father being murdered, um, you know, in such a way. And being separated from her family, you know, even like uh, Yorin, uh, what happens to him in season yeah. two and, and sort of them getting uh, captured again. And yeah, right uh, after, especially because Yorin's the yeah. one who gives her the idea for the list, like the list of names that she recites to herself of people that she's going to kill. As far yeah. as that goes, Yorin's the one who gives it, the it, idea to her. It's almost like she regains a father figure. And you can you could for a moment think like, you know, she's going to go to the, the wall and become part of the watch just to hide, you know, maybe, maybe they don't go to Winterfell because the heat's too hot, you know, like either she gets back home or like, you know, her and Yorin have this sort of like spinoff or they're doing adventures beyond the wall. I don't know, you know, whatever, but there's hope there, um, that she finally has someone that, uh, understands the pain she's going through and can work through that. And, you know, that so that that's what we have look, to look forward to in season yeah. two. And but the other I, thing, I think, too, is I think that it basically it ages her when another traumatic thing happens and another thing happens. And, you know, it, it's it's one of those things where, uh, you know, that particular scene makes sense that, you know, she's ready to explore, you know, more adult things. Um, you know, at a, even a young age. So uh, it, it's very interesting. Maybe, yeah, I agree with you. It might not have been handled uh, 100%. Uh, but we're talking about, you know, Jason Momoa and the oh, witch oh, and man. Daenerys not being handled properly. Yeah. There's a couple we'll, things. We'll, that we'll, we'll get to that in, in the focus character segment. But I, I wanted to real quick just touch on Rob and Cap because even though Rob doesn't have that much screen time in this episode, it's too monumental it's a monumental sequence that happens obviously with him being crowned king in the north obviously we know that the 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 doom this kind of sets him up on right i wonder i always wonder this right which is the idea of okay so they know obviously that their only course of action in order to deal with the lannisters is to team up with either stannis or renly and their whole thing is they're debating whether to declare for which baratheon brother as far as that goes and then obviously great john umber comes up with the idea to crown Rob the king in the north and even though we know how that ends for Rob it kind of sets up this kind of micro struggle that the Starks in and of themselves have going for them where Sansa even brings this up in the finale which is that they kind of like struggle to strive for this independence from the rest of the seven kingdoms and it kind of makes sense logistically because the north is so massive the north in and of itself is bigger than the other seven kingdoms like combined so it makes sense for like the north to have this independence right and the whole thing is that going all the way back to that first episode right with 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 um with Torrin stark the last king who knelt obviously to the targaryens great john umber brings that back which is that it was the dragons who we knelt to and now it's the dragons um it's and now the dragons are all gone i'm wondering is this like yet another 
like of the Starks infinite blunders that happened throughout the season to declare themselves as independent rather than declare for one of the Baratheon brothers because even though they do this move they still ultimately Rob does send Catelyn south in order to try and negotiate with Renly and perchance with Stannis in order to try and engage some sort of alliance and he sends Theon away to his father and we obviously see how that turns out as far as that goes but I don't know like do you think that that was the right decision crowning, crowning themselves independent you know uh in my point of view, I think it is the right decision because, you know, for the most part, I never get the sense that the combined kingdoms is sustainable, right? You know, it's, you know, Robert says himself that there's always sort of this like struggle amongst them. And, you know, it, it's, it just seems like there it's everyone's going for petty wants and desires and whatnot and because the north has sort of this sense of duty sense of honor you know um you know having them as independent ruling themselves uh really kind of reclusive and not getting involved in too many sort of you know games of thrones uh, so to speak like they're just sort of like a peaceful out of the way kingdom they don't want to deal with this treachery and, you know, I think that's going to be separating themselves and being a separate kingdom. And, you know, really, they're sort of the ideal kingdom that the the entire, you know, uh, combined kingdoms could never be. You know, it's sort of like they um, do get along in, in such a way where it's like honor is is important, although uh, that gets chipped away. You know, as like Ned is now dead. Uh, yep. when, and then once we bring the Boltons into the picture, and once the Greyjoy invasion of the North happens, and exactly. people start to question Rob, and then the Karstark obviously leaving them, and, and you know, between a rock and a hard place in season three, which forces them to try to appeal to the phrase, and it's just it's yeah. So I think there's a lot of fracturing that happens uh, because um, you know the the Lannisters. Uh, are really fighting an aggressive war uh, to control all the kingdoms. And, you know, they're doing it through sort of schemes and through betrayals and through offering territories and power and, and all that type of stuff that sort of, you know, Robert was uh, preaching against in, in the first season before his death. And for the most part, that is brought to the north. And it's that's really what they're fighting is is you know we need honor we need respect that's that's really what creates a stable environment, and you know they think they can do it independently and you know separate themselves from what's going on in the rest of the kingdoms, and I think teaming up with um, you know Renly is sort of trying to undo the mistake that Ned made, uh, not teaming up with him in the first place. You know, get the overwhelming numbers, control the crown, basically bring it back to that stable point. But, you know, uh, what happens between Stannis and Renly sort of uh, prevents that from happening and really tumbles this further out of control as we go through season two. So it's one of those things where, um, you know, even though the, the North, right, by declaring Rob the king of the North and sort of them trying to correct the mistakes that Ned made, uh, it's it's still not enough because the pieces have been set in motion uh, to prevent that. So it, it's one. Of, it's a very interesting thing that you phrase of like, was it a good thing for them to do? And uh, I think you know, I think yes. I think it's ultimately what they had to do. Uh, you know, because they had to sort of try to play this referee, pro try to bring honor back to the kingdoms. And, you know, try to correct the, the mistakes uh, that Ned unfortunately made. Uh, and, and it's sort of like in hindsight. And they they almost attain it, uh, as we'll see in season two. But, um, you know, it, it basically uh, does fall apart, uh, unfortunately. Yeah, absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, the only other kind of major scene that came from this, obviously, is Kat's first of many interrogations of Jamie, obviously, where she Jamie just kind of admits to pushing Bran out the window, then Kat hits him with the rock, and then says that he's going to this be a worse of seven hells, and then Jamie, Jamie kind of makes this proclamation about the gods, and if they're so just, then why is the world so full of cruel men? And then he does the infinite whole thing, of the, the Loki thing of, oh, there are no men like me, and then he does this really interesting line where he says, oh, sleep well, it's going to be a long war, which is kind of foretelling it isn't, because the war, I feel like, doesn't go on for as long as 
as as we think it does, right? Because as as we as Tyrion brings up in a couple of seasons, obviously kings start dying like flies. First with Renly, then with Joffrey, then with Rob, then later on, even though he dies much later than he's supposed to in the books. But Balon Greyjoy, and kind of Stannis is the only one left standing, kind of by default. But it still doesn't necessarily make him king. So that's more so stuff that we can get into as far as you know once we hit season two. But I thought that was just another interesting line that was very foretelling. But well, even the war amongst the Lannister clan, you know, <laughs> that that basically heats things up too, because um, the amount of Lannisters that sit on the throne throughout the course of the series uh, is—it's—it it, is nuts. It's—it's it's yeah. like everyone pretty much has a turn except for uh, Tywin. Yeah, it's like everyone has a turn and if they don't have a turn then they end up dead so that that's pretty much how the show goes ultimately yeah. but speaking of otter let's talk real quick about john john again kind of wraps up his arc again it's very minimalistic this arc was primarily set up for him throughout the show but the thing that becomes immediately apparent here is john officially makes his decision he is officially putting his foot down and saying okay I, I have this opportunity to go south. It's it's a, it's the wrong decision, obviously, because I know what happens to deserters, but I don't care in the moment because at the at first he's acting rationally. Then his brothers go and they bring him, uh, Sam, Gran, and Pip obviously bring him back by reciting the Night's Watch vows. And then he appears with the Lord Commander. The Lord Commander kind of gives him the spiel about honor bringing him back, but it not being his honor. And then saying that, you know, you need to make this decision. Are you going to be a bastard boy trying to play a war? Are you a man of the Night's Watch? Before he announces that, um, he's kind of leading this large expedition north in order to try and find out what happened to Benjamin Stark and all the other rangers that went missing north of the wall and figure out what's going on with the wildlings and the rumors about the dead and, and everything. And his whole thing is it's like, look, he's kind of reinforcing that idea that John buys into at least for the first part of his arc for like the next couple seasons, which is that ultimately, as is revealed with you know within the opening scene of this season, is that ultimately the fighting and all the squabbling between the men of the seven kingdoms kind of echoing robert's sentiments it doesn't matter it doesn't matter because the dead are coming and when the dead come it's not going to matter who sits on the iron throne you know and that's kind of established right here and then you know because john even though he's very still enmeshed in emotion as far as that goes he does understand that like look there is something that is greater and even though the night's watch is kind of you know, gone down in, in his eyes as far as what he thinks, thought it was versus what it actually is, he does understand that at the end of the day, they do have a greater role to play. And they do kind of serve, ultimately, this higher cause. So it kind of goes into that whole honor statement with Rob, right? Where the North is kind of trying to fight to preserve that honor that is so missing from the remaining seven kingdoms. But they're ultimately fighting, you know, not just for honor, but quite literally, they're fighting for life and death. And it's obviously something that becomes a major focus in the last couple of seasons, but I don't know, what, do, you, do you think this, like, accurately reflects the kind of the, the pinnacle, the wrap-up of John arc especially after that awesome moment in the last episode with maester raymond well I, I think you know again i said this uh you know for episode nine when we were talking about it last week and for the most part it's john you know is still learning he's still young he's sort of still got that blood in his fires or uh fire in the in his blood so to speak uh to bring up the name of the episode like he's ready to rush you know off uh, you know, throw the vows away. Who cares about the oath? Let me go join this war. Let me go avenge uh, Ned Stark's death. And it's one of those things where, you know, he, he's been taught about honor and what it means to uphold an oath, but he's never really had to do it. And so, you know, he's really ready to rush into something else and, and not really know what it really means to stick with something. And, you know, his friends, you know, that he is sort of bound to uh, remind him and, you know, Mormont reminds him. And it's one of those things where, um, you know, the, the Lord Commander Mormont it becomes basically his father. Like Ned could never really be his father, you know, even though he was, right? He was the bastard son, but, you know, well, he really... As we find out later, not so much, but... Yeah, yeah. exactly. But like he never really was able to, uh, you know, other than like the fact that he lived in Winterfell and he sort of, you know, they, he got to grow up with Rob and, and Bran and Sansa and Arya and, and like be a part of the family. He never really got that direct father uh, bond, you know, or, or at least not to the same uh, impact that like, you know, uh, um, that some of the other uh, Starks got. But it, it's one of those things like with, with being, you know, forced to sort of go to the wall 
and separate from Ned. It's like he still he needs a father figure. He doesn't have it. And the Lord Commander sort of becomes that and actually finishes the lesson that Ned set up about uh, oath keeping and honor. And that's something that uh, the Lord Commander uh, is going to continue teaching John throughout the uh, second season. And so I think it's one of those things where we're showing the parallel between Ned and the Lord Commander uh, as honorable people uh, that exist in this world. And, you know, it's it's now that Ned's gone, it, it's really like those lessons that Ned sort of taught him growing up. It's now time to act on those. And this is really the first test, right? You know, him leaving and being brought back by his friends. He's learning the bonds of friendship. And then, you know, uh, Mormont tells him uh, really what happened and sort of says it in such a way that he can digest it and fully understand what he has to do going forward. And I think this is when John really starts being a man and starts, you know, become or at least he starts becoming a man of, of Winterfell and understanding that, you know, honor is all you have. And, you know, because he swore this oath, that's the only way that he can earn that honor, uh, you know, throughout the kingdoms. I find it interesting because this sequence, along with one other sequence in this finale that I'm currently forgetting about, were actually not in the original book of Game of Thrones. They were actually from the chapters that were from the beginning of book two, A Clash of Kings, that they ended up adding to this season. And I Actually, I remember now, it was this scene and the scene where Arya meets Hot Pie and Gendry. Both of those two sequences were things that were originally from book two, A Clash of Kings, that were added on to the end of the season. And honestly, it works way better because you kind of get to see the wrap-up and the finale of finality of both Arya and Jon's respective arcs and kind of where that's going to set them up on their journey going forward and you're right definitely like John definitely finds a father figure in the Lord Commander that he never really had before and it definitely I feel like kind of sets him up as far as okay so now that he has this new father figure he wants to impress him and that's kind of what sets him up for like when he goes on his journey with the wildlings and kind of in a weird way steers him towards this direction of almost becoming this leader without even realizing because that's the whole thing that's the whole interest behind John's arc is that John starts off as somebody who is not going to be inheriting anything and ends up essentially being revealed not only to kind of like end up being the savior figure to the wildlings as time goes on and the savior of the whole realm as he's the only one that's really shepherding and pushing the idea of, okay, the dead are coming, the dead are coming, the dead are coming. But he's also revealed to be the heir apparent when his Targaryen heritage is revealed, obviously, making him like a direct opposition to Daenerys, obviously. So I find it really interesting how all of those seeds, even though like they don't necessarily come up until later on they can still be found here as far as again he starts off this show lost and even though he's a part of this great house he feels very isolated very alone very confused he kind of just wants to act out i made a couple jokes earlier in the season about him kind of being this being this season being his emo phase kind of but he ultimately does he forms some camaraderie he finds his family that he really never had and it ultimately teaches him not only with what being a man is but like what being a part of something is and i feel like that's Ultimately, what influences decision the most as far as deciding to, okay, I'm here, I'm with the Night's Watch, this is my purpose now, I have to leave all that stuff, like, you know, behind, and, because this this is our trek forward now, as far as that goes. So, yeah, and I, I, I think it's ironic the, also that he ends this season with committing to something, and then he ends the show with literally saying, fuck all, I'm just gonna go and chill north of the wall with the wildlings. <laughs> yeah, but I think one of the things is that, you know, he starts at rock bottom. He doesn't know his place in the world and that's eating at him. And even though like he is sort of in the Stark's home of Winterfell and he has privileges and whatnot, he's he's always the bastard, right? You know, he's always on the outside. And so, you know, he, he goes to the Night's Watch, he says the oath, like, you know, whether it's he's expected to do that or it's just a way of him finding himself. Um you know, it's, it's, he's sort of thrust into that experience and, you know, he has to kind of grow and learn from it and really go from, uh, you know, the bottom, like a nobody bastard, you know, who is basically a, a steward at the wall and he has to become a leader. He has to, you know, uh, build his friendships, build his like sort of ability to lead and command and really be able to, you know, fulfill uh, the honor that is required uh, to fight back the White Walkers. And so, you know, he's really starting from nothing and building himself up as a, a really strong character uh, for the future. 
And that's sort of paralleling uh, Daenerys's story where she's sort of sold into marriage, um, you know, and is just sort of like Cal Drogo's plaything. And then, you know, turns into sort of this great Khaleesi, the mother of dragons, you know, uh, the freer of slaves, like every other title that she gets. Basically, yeah, she's starting from ground zero and building herself up in different ways. Uh, And, you know, towards the end of the series, we get to see how the two of them interact in their fully uh, adult, like strong leader uh, type roles. And so it's really that's, I think, the uh, sort of linchpin of this entire show is, you know, setting these characters up from from ground zero and showing the audience how they grow in this sort of world of all this terrible stuff that's going on. And, you know, it's, um, you know, it's, it's basically, um, you know, how, how do they deal with what's going on? How do they restore peace? How they, how do they build some sort of bounce in the world? And, you know, the answer is just let Tyrion decide. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, pretty much. I feel like that's a prisoner. <laughs> I feel like that's a great transition into our next character that we're touching on, kind of you know the wrap up of all the arcs for the season, which is Tyrion, obviously. But real quick before we did that, so this episode, I haven't done this in a couple episodes, but the last episode and this episode were both directed by Alan Taylor, who is a guy who has directed a lot of episodes of some of the best TV shows ever. Right? This is famous. I believe I gotta check, but I believe that he actually may have directed the most amount of episodes. He directed seven episodes throughout the entirety of the show. He directed the final two episodes, obviously, of season one. The first First two episodes of season two, episodes eight and ten, the finale. So this is so he directed actually two season finales for season two, and then he came back in season seven, uh, obviously for in order to direct the the penultimate episode, uh, Beyond the Wall, famously that episode where they go, you know, beyond the wall in order to get a White Walker, uh, in order to prove that oh yeah, the dead exist, and it's like okay, you couldn't have done that when you were up like north of the wall like the last fifteen times, but. Whatever. We're yeah, not here talking about the on Instagram, yet. Dom, but like, yeah, not, I know, <laughs> you know, I know. for the most part. Yeah, I know. Uh, and, and who knows how long Ravens take to get there. But I, I, yeah. I like this idea that kind of, you know, he all, all of his episodes that he directs, he kind of captures the characters at like these very pivotal moments in this journey, in their journeys, obviously. Famously, he directed the episode The Prince of Winterfell, which is the eighth episode of season two, which is kind of the build up, right, to the Blackwater battle that takes up all of episode nine, which is where he's kind of doing this interesting thing with playing around with Theon where he finds Theon at this big crux in his journey before Theon ultimately has to make a decision two episodes from then and it's the same kind of in Beyond the Wall even though that's more of an action-paced episode but I think Alan Taylor's a really good guy when it comes to like capturing characters at these very crucial moments he did the same thing actually way back when in The Sopranos because so famously he only directed one episode for The Sopranos first season um, and then left for a couple seasons. Then he came back in season four to direct the episode The Strong Silent Type, which is the episode where Tony and the rest of the gangsters were trying to having to confront Christopher about his drug addiction. And they have this awesome kind of intervention for him that, of course, goes horribly because, again, trying to I- I- implement like 21st century tactics of, of, of handling the human condition on mobsters is just hilarious and you know will go wrong. But I, I find it really interesting how every, I feel like, episode that he directs of these television shows, you always get the characters at these very, very crucial like kind of turning points in their journeys. And this episode is no exception. Now, with Tyrion's uh, struggle with this episode, Tyrion also, even though, once again, remaining the voice of reason here, kind of, you know, we have that big Lannister sit down with all those other Lannisters, and they're throwing all these suggestions, and Tywin is kind of ignoring them, and he's kind of being like, you know, they have my son, kind of just still processing the idea that his golden boy has actually, like, been captured, right? Because Tywin obviously values Jamie clearly over every other one of his children, and Tyrion obviously does this thing where he knocks the glass of wine on the floor and says, that right there is your piece. It disappeared the moment that Joffrey ordered Ned's head cut off, you know? And afterwards, Tywin has this moment where, for probably the only time in the entire series, Tywin acknowledges not only Tyrion's usefulness, but the fact that Tyrion actually, if given half a chance, could do some actual real good in this series and and for the realm, you know? He under, he makes it clear to him, it's like, you were right, I was wrong, I should have kind of listened to you as far as that goes. Now, before we might have had a chance to, you know, lesson and ease the tension but now with Ned gone things are continuing to spiral out of control and I, I'm not going to be able to do what I can because I still have to fight this war out here in the Riverlands so I need you to kind of take my place as far as you know 
um, taking my place as the Hand of the King for the time being. And he essentially gifts Tyrion his position as Hand of the King to serve in his stead. You know, like he says, you know, go to King's Landing, get Joffrey and Cersei under control, make sure that nothing else like this happens again. If you smell even a whiff of treachery. And the, the interesting thing about this is that not only is it an acknowledgement, obviously, of Tywin kind of acknowledging the son that for the longest time he's always kind of wished dead. He's made it very clear that he wants Tyrion dead multiple times throughout the series, but also it's kind of his, it's kind of this meta acknowledgement of like, okay, now it's Tyrion's time to shine. Now he finally has this chance at, at real power that he kind of never would have had the opportunity to do so before. I always find it interesting how, right, we have the parallels between Jon and Daenerys, right, as time goes on, but then Tyrion is almost kind of serves as like this tertiary force between the two of them where he understands kind of both sides, but because he's several years older than them, he has kind of this wisdom and experience that none of the two of them really have because of the horrors and the experiences that he's had, but this is really still the first chance that he has to shine. So, Besides it being just beyond satisfying, like, what do you think as far as, like, you know, Tyrion finally, you know, having a chance to do some real good and him essentially kind of being gifted as, like, the savior of the realm where he's now got to go and kind of fix, essentially, everything that his family has screwed up? Well, I think season one did a great job with Tyrion. You know, it's one of those things where, like, he's book smart. He's, you know, wants to visit a lot of places. He goes up to the wall to do this sort of touristy thing where he's going to piss off the other side of it, you know, and, and it's one of those things where, you know, he's meeting people. He's, he's understanding who the Lord commander is and the man of the one that's watch. He understands Jon Snow. He's a very, uh, student of people and understanding their psychology. And, you know, when he's even captured and he sort of, you know, decides to do the trial by combat, he, controls that situation and understands the people involved enough that he could actually uh, uh, sort of get his way out of that situation, which he pretty much should have died in. And so his, you know, arc in season one is really showing that he's an intelligent, capable leader. And then when he kind of confronts his father and um, eventually gets named Hand of the King, it's it's like, hey, Tywin doesn't really, tr- I, I guess, trust him that much. But it's like uh, you seem to understand this. You seem to to have like uh, your your finger on it. Um, so go ahead. You know, like you're going to go and you're going to be the my hand of the king. And I think this is sort of like a big test. You know, it's it's like, are you a useful part of the family? Um, that we've never really, you know, utilized before are, you know, and, and are you going to fail? And I think uh, Tywin is is doing this because he's sort of backed into that corner and has to do it. And it's like, well, Joffrey and Cersei aren't going to do it. So like batters up, you know, here, here put the bat in your hand yep. and go out there. Like, and you know, you know, because, because Tywin, I, I think the other thing too, obviously is subliminally. I think that even though Tywin knows that like, if Tyrion screws up, like that's it, they're done. And his whole thing is that he preaches his legacy. But Tywin also, I think is subconsciously kind of hoping that Tyrion fails. And the whole thing is that he knows that Jamie's captured. Cersei and Joffrey just made a big mess of things in King's Landing. He knows he's got no other options as far as that goes. But subliminally, I think he's also like, yes, let's put it to the test. Let's see what Tyrion can do. But at the end of the day, he's also kind of hoping and wishing it's like, yeah, like Tyrion's going to screw this up and eventually I'm going to have to come in and kind of save everything. So if so either way it works, whether this is actually Tywin having some faith in Tyrion for once or whether he's just kind of setting this up as this elaborate ploy to allow him to quite literally come in and save the day at the end of season two when him and, and, and when, when his forces and the newly allied Tyrell forces come in and save them um, from Stannis' forces ultimately. But either way, I, I think it's a matter of definitely you're right. Tywin is back to do a wall. He has no other choice. And again, it kind of results in Tyrion, for me, again, being the best that he's ever been and finally having this chance at power and also having this chance at kind of, um, you know, making a name for himself that he really never did before. And so if season one is kind of all about setting him up as this intelligent, competent uh, figure, then season two is kind of seeing what happens when he's actually given a chance to utilize those gifts. And again, for the most part, he does it pretty damn well. Again, so Peter Dinklage famously won the Emmy for supporting actor for his performance as Tyrion for this first season and then would go on to win for seasons five and then the last two seasons but personally also I think they kind of like did a disservice to him when they also didn't have him win for season two because there are points of his performance in season two that I think surpass his performance in the season but it's still a very very well earned I'm gonna say like season two is the best at Tyrion because 
for the most part, you know, you have John Aaron who who is the hand of the king and he dies, you know, really before we understand what the yeah. role of the hand of the king is. So we can't really judge, you know, his leadership or, you know, his, his position and how he handled it uh, other than the fact that he died. So I guess he didn't really handle it that well. And then you have Ned Stark who went through this whole entire arc of not being able to handle it, not being able to. Uh, understand who his real allies and who real foes were, and he fails miserably. And you know, season one's all about setting Tyrion up as someone that can really, you know, uh, own a room and control people and lead people. And now he's hand of the king, and it's like, is he going to suffer the same fate as Ned Stark? Because you know, the past two hands have easily been uh, dealt with and killed, and now uh, Tyrion is faced with a challenge of do I, you know, survive uh, this position? Am I able to sort of get the power I need to be an effective hand of the king? And that's really the ride that is set up for season two. We're going to see all the little uh, power things that he does uh, behind the scenes, all the schemes, all the you know, things that he does to rein Cersei in. And it's not just like, hey, you know, be a little more respectful. Uh, you know, Stannis is the right heir. Um, you know, Tyrion plays the game and does it, uh, you know, quite well in, in season two. Yeah, and Varys even comments, it's like, Ned Stark hated the game, and that's part of what got him killed, but and refused to play, and that's what got him killed. But you, not only are you play the game, not only do you, enjoy, not only are you good at it, but you enjoy it too. And Tyrion says, "Yeah, I, I kind of do." You know, even though he's kind of, again, he's further demoted and humiliated. Really, after season two, there's a reason why. Again, part of the reason why he's so good at it is because he knows he's good at it. And Daenerys brings up this point later on when he becomes her hand, which is that people like what they're good at, and Tyrion likes what he's good at, which is ruling and organizing people. And the fact that he's probably the only one who's able to do it in a way that's not too malicious and not too naive. He has just the right amount of foresight in order to be able to make the right decisions, but he's also got just good enough of a heart in order to kind of see the big picture, but also do what's best for everyone in the long run and not be cruel or malicious or naive to the point that it gets him killed, you know? So that, I feel like, is what sums up Tyrion so well and kind of sets him up for this next season. Now, for this next segment, I'm going to kind of mix everything. We're going to kind of mix the focus character with the final character. Arc yeah, that we, we got to talk about the... pretty much one more thing in this episode, yeah. right? <laughs> Dom your, fa your favorite part. Your, Daenerys, your favorite part you know? of this entire season, um, which is Daenerys' arc and how that wraps up, where I know we talked about it a lot last episode. You had your problems with it. I I definitely agree. There are a listen, lot of elements listen, that are kind of Dom, rushed in order to kind of make things episode, happen. I compared Jason Momoa's, you know, performance in this final episode to Ben Stiller in Tropic Thunder, right? Oh, man. You know, that, I mean, that, that, that that's phrase, a little bit of a stretch, but I, I get where you're coming from you know, as far as that goes. Yeah, well, he, he got too into the character. He went full comatose, you know, and it, it was basically just like, just he was like, planking and, and drooling and like it, it I don't know I don't know how I feel about this whole storyline like the idea that you know he's cut and then a witch basically uh inf purposely infects Poi the purposely wound. poisons him and then does and this crazy magic spell that renders him comatose but kills Danny's son in the same time like yeah, it's, it's, all, like, it's, it, it's it, all it's it's all okay reeks. come on are, are you gonna reeks like of just setting things up for the sake of setting things up? She's basically going to do some sort of spell that includes killing his horse, and because she said she can deliver children, you're gonna bring Danny into that tent, and she's going to be doing this weird horse murder sacrifice and midwife action at the same time. Like it, it's to me, whatever. The whole storyline doesn't make any sense, but it basically sets up. Uh, Daenerys, and after this whole thing happens, and she realizes uh, Drogo is not going to not be be of any of use. Her child is dead. It's like Calisars abandoned her. Yeah. So, so what does she do next? You know. Uh, and this is where the fire part of the episode name the comes into play. Comes in. So, yeah. yeah. What takes place, Dom, and, and why do you why do you uh, actually? think this is a great <laughs> well, setup for look, the next season. I, I don't necessarily think that this is a great setup for the next season. I think it ends in one hell of a closing shot with obviously the scene of her walking into Drogo's funeral pyre 
with Miri Mazdar tied to it, you know, but kind of trusting in kind of the invulnerability that she has to fire that was kind of set up earlier in the season. And obviously when we see her at the end, we see that she's kind of solidified this loyalty to her, this undying loyalty from Jorah and the remaining Kalasar members that are left loyal to her with the birth of her three dragons. And she kind of... She kind of uses this a lot in the later seasons as kind of an explanation as to why she deserves to be the rightful ruler. And I talked about this a lot on the last episode, right? But I wanted to talk about it more here, which is this idea that even though Danny ultimately we're rooting for her because of the things that she does and because she, again, she has this big gusso message of, yes, we're going to free everyone. We're going to end tyranny. We're going to break the wheel. We're going to end it all systems. Not only is the fact that that's not feasible at all because just of the inherent, you know, the nature of the beast whole thing as far as people goes, but... The other thing, too, is that as far as I'm concerned, again, I talked about this a lot last episode, the seeds of her going crazy are planted right here, where she's mad at Miri Mazdur, and Miri Mazdur is bringing up legitimate points to why she did not, had no intention of keeping Drogo around for any reason at all and for killing Daenerys' baby. She even says it, it's like, your baby would have been the stallion that mounted the wind. How many lives have I saved, essentially, by killing him? You know, kind of as, as an interesting little throwback to the whole thing of Grand Maester Pycelle trying to make the argument, you know, back when Robert was saying, was arguing for Daenerys' death about how many lives will be spared, obviously, if we end her now, as opposed to, you know, if she crosses the narrow sea with several thousand Dothraki screamers later. And we kind of see the result of that when she comes to Westeros, right? And she starts off trying to play it cool, trying to play it calm, trying to play it rational, and then eventually gives into her greater Targaryen impulses, right? We're not going to talk a whole lot about the Targaryens, but the whole thing, right, that's brought up later on, that kind of factors not only into the Targaryens and their whole dynasty, but also for the Lannisters as well, and kind of the reason why Cersei and Jaime's kids don't end up necessarily having the best of fates, which is that every time a Targaryen was born, the gods flipped a coin, but the reason why that was made a thing was because literally the Targaryens wed brother and sister, and they did the whole pure, pure line literally keeping it within the family, uh, you know, kind of thing that we know kind of results in a lot of genetic abnormalities, uh, I, I, you know, and as a result, we kind of saw, again, the Targaryens, when they were ruling Westeros, it was either they were the best rulers or the worst. You either had a Baelor the Blessed or you had a Mykar the Cruel. You either had an Aegon the Conqueror or you had an Ares the Mad King. You know, there was never a Targaryen that was ever kind of in the middle. And again, part of, I think, the crucial part of Danny's arc that, again, they missed they had the pieces all there, but they missed with those last two seasons was the idea that Danny was trying to be the first Targaryen that didn't subscribe to that belief, but ultimately, at the end of the day, she gave in to her deeper Targaryen urges, and I still stand by the fact that I definitely think that that's where they were going with the books, and I definitely think that, again, had it been handled more properly and had they had more time to flesh it out, it could have resulted in something really interesting, kind of seeing Daenerys grapple with all this, because that whole part of her characteristic is set up heavily once she conquers the slave cities and decides to stay there and rule. The whole part of why her arc in A Dance of Dragons, the book, is so compelling is because she has this constant push-pull back and forth, somebody telling her to do one thing, somebody telling her to do another thing, and it seems like everything that she tries just results in failure. And so you even have that moment where Olena tells her at the end of Season 7, it's like, you know, your your Aegon the Conqueror didn't conquer Westeros by being nice to everyone. He conquered it with fire and blood. She's like, you're a dragon. Be a dragon. And that's kind of, again, it's summed up again, I think, in the title of this episode where at the end she emerges as kind of almost like this messiah-like figure but ultimately to what end i think it's actually kind of ingenious how martin set that up where she's hailed as the messiah but ends up kind of being this almost devil of sorts that brings all this destruction with her you know at the behest of doing things for the greater good well, I think, you know, again, like most characters in this uh, first season, apparently she's traumatized, you know, several times. Seems but, to be uh, a going trend, specifically with the female characters this season. Yeah, apparently, like, the the whole thing sums up the reason why the kingdoms can't get along is trauma. But for the, for the most part, you're, you know, talking to your point of her being crazy, it's like she's walking into a funeral pyre. Like, yeah, she understands. Like, that, she that's not normal. Yeah, she can't get burned and whatnot. So you understand that there's something, uh, you know, I guess magical about her. And she walks into it and, you know, basically emerges with the three dragons, baby dragons. It's one of those things where, like, there's no turning back. You know, it's like you're a different person at this point. And that, that's really the setup here is, you know, getting rid of every element or most of the elements of season one which is the Kalsar and Cal Drogo and, you know, the fact that she was this great Khaleesi. Now it's like she has the devoted people that basically see the end result of this funeral pyre and dragons. 
so she has like the true believers and she's going to go to the next sort of uh, place in season two and try to figure out how to get from her new rock bottom uh, and grow her back up into a position of power. And, you know, this is going to be sort of a constant thing for Daenerys for a while is, you know, every single new place that she goes doesn't quite work out the way is expected. Yep. And how does that sort of make her stronger? How does that bring her to uh, be a more effective ruler? You know, how does this bring her to power to the point where she's able to get over to Westeros and start, you know, playing the Game of Thrones and enter that sort of realm? Yeah, definitely. It's definitely a thing that will be, I think, of very big interest to us as we continue to cover her arc throughout the next couple seasons um, and kind of, you know, where the things start to go wrong. Because I, I think a lot of the things that happened that kind of caused her arc to go wrong, I think, started early on in the show. Because obviously the whole thing is she has after, right, obviously this initial tragedy, right, with losing kind of all of Drogo's forces, right, she kind of spends a season wavering around in Karth, where even though that seems like a kind of a non-consequential storyline for her, I know a lot of people complain about the Karth storyline for her in season two. She does ultimately learn a lot kind of about the people who she thinks are loyal to her versus the people who are just kind of playing her, and she kind of learns those necessary lessons early on, which leads her to obviously kind of have this awesome upward trajectory of conquering the slave cities, and then she learns, okay, now I actually have to learn how a rule and she discovers that it's not as easy as it looks so yeah i would say dumb like uh having you know a season two spoiler if you haven't seen it but uh too bad this is a show where we talk about the whole series yep <laughs> you know uh season two the dragons get uh ripped away from her yeah uh so it's like a mother having her children taken um and it's one of those things where it's more trauma added to the uh the the pile you know so it, it's like ultimately um, you know, I, I remember correctly that, uh, you know, cause obviously she has the dragons towards the end of the series, but she gets her dragons back, but the damage is sort of also added to the psyche. You know, it's like at any yeah. moment, someone could take these dragons away from me. Yep. And, you know, it's, it's that, that's something that remains as one of the lessons that remains in the back of her mind all the way to the end of the series. Yeah, and definitely. And I think there are like a lot of other ancillary characters that come in, in the books that kind of serve to reinforce that. Like, it's interesting, obviously, how they utilize the dragons going forward, obviously, with the show. Obviously, because, you know, they're limited budget and they can only do certain things. And it's still amazing to me, kind of the growth, obviously, not just of the characters, but of the CG. And uh, the CG starts off and they think those things look like little runty CG creatures that you've seen in a million things before. And as they grow more and more and more and more until they're like these full-fledged, gigantic beasts of destruction, it amazes me, kind of the visual effects. Like, same all about those last two seasons, but the visual effects were definitely on point as far as that goes but uh with that being said man that's pretty much it for season one the only thing that i wanted to kind of rattle off is i wanted to do a final rest in peace for all the characters that we lost this season you know all of the major and the minor ones that we lost uh obviously again major main character deaths like main cast member lists that we saw die like the stable boy yes that was killed by Needle. R.I.P. the stable boy, but now we at have least, <laughs> At least that was the first like victim of Needle. We get to see it up front and personally, yeah. you know. So we have um we have the death of Viserys in episode uh six, a golden crown. We have the death of Robert Baratheon in episode seven, uh You Win or You Die. We have the, obviously the famous death of Ned Stark in the previous episode, episode nine Baylor, and this episode we have the death of Cal Drogo, uh Jason Momoa. In this episode, R.I.P. to all those other major characters, and R.I.P. to all the other guys, the Three Nights Watch members that died in the first episode, John Aaron, the Assassin, Lady Sansa's Direwolf, Micah the Butcher's Boy, Sir Hugh of the Vale, Sir Gregor's Horse, Jory Cassell, and all the rest of Ned's guards that perish in King's Landing, the Three Wildlings who attempt to abduct Bran, Sir Vardis Egan, uh, Daenerys' attempted assassin in uh, episode 7, uh, Septim Ordain, Cyril Pharrell, the stable boy, the two white corpses that Jon kills, uh, Mago, who's the Dothraki that Drogo kills in that one-on-one -on -one fight where he gets the wound in episode 8, Kotho, and Miri Mazdur. R.I.P. to all of those characters. I wish I could say we missed you, but honestly, it's just impressive that I was able to keep track of all those deaths. Let's be completely honest here. Yeah, that, hey, listen, that's a lot of folks that's... It is uh, a lot of folks' death. just got a shout-out for... 
their role in the first season of Game of Thrones. Of course, and and the, and the death count is only going to keep going up as we continue to break down this show as it keeps going on, people. So once again, we pre-recorded this episode. Next week, we will be taking a break, obviously, for certain things that are going on, a certain thing that we're recording that's going to come later on for the channel that I think you guys are really going to enjoy. It's something completely different that we've never done before on the channel. And But we will be back in two weeks for the premiere season two Episode 1, The North Remembers, on two Sundays from now. That's right. So next Sunday, you guys have off. Take a break. Two Sundays from now, we will officially be back to begin Season 2, which is ultimately one of the best seasons. Pat, I wanted to thank you again for being here with me every step of this journey of Ice and Fire, and I, and I can't wait to discuss this show further with you as we continue to go along. Where can the good people find you on the interwebs? Hey, Dom, thanks for, for having me. I, I didn't know what to expect when you said, hey, you want to watch Game of Thrones again? I was like, oh, I think I'm past that. But uh, hey, I'll give it a try. I remember that being a good show. And uh, I'm glad I'm sort of watching it. Glad I'm talking to you about it. You know, it, it's definitely uh, a good refresher to go through such a good show again. And, you know, hey, uh, catch me on Instagram at Patrick W. Heber uh, and here on the Talking TV uh, YouTube channel or podcast. You know, I'm, I'm basically... Uh, you know, talking thrones, and uh, hopefully, you enjoy the conversations. Absolutely. And you can, of course, find me on Facebook and Instagram at Talkin' TV or at Talkin' TV Podcast, where I post every single day about all the stuff that is going on on the channel. You can also follow my personal page at Movie Nerd Reviews, all one word. And of course, be sure to click the subscribe button, click the like button, click the bell next to it, and leave a comment section below. What did you guys think of our first full season of Talkin' Thrones? What are you looking forward to the most overall? Where would you kind of rank the episodes of season one? Where do you think season one ranks in the overall canon? All of those questions and more, leave them in in the comments section below. Thank you guys once again for being so attuned to each of these episodes. We've only gotten more to come 10 episodes down. We've got 63 episodes left to go and we are just getting started. So we will see you guys in two weeks for the official finale. Uh, sorry, for the official premiere of season two of Talking Thrones. And as always, people remember, 12 seasons in a short film and watch more fucking movies and TV. Eat we'll more barbecue and, and roasted vegetables. And eat more barbecue. And maybe and some fireworks, you know, if you, if you can legally do that. We'll see you guys next time. Take care.